Now, today, we're going to start Proverbs chapter 27. As you know, we've been coming to the book of Proverbs. We have been in it now 450 years. And uh, uh, I never get in a hurry with any book of the Bible, but if there's any book of the Bible that I would never want to get in a hurry on, it would be the book of Proverbs. You know, uh, the book of Proverbs, without a doubt, is the mind of God. It really shows us how God looks at everything. And that's why Solomon, who was the wisest man that ever lived, you know, really, uh, really just laid it out. And, you know, it's, a, it's an incredible book. And we have learned so much from it. And, um, you know, uh, we're, the best parts are yet to come, even though it's all been good. And in this chapter, you know, here again, I've just got one verse that we're going to start off with today, which I think personally is, is one of the greatest truths of life. And it's something that uh, um, all of us can learn from, all of us can benefit from. Uh, it's a truth that every man, uh, whether he's saved and, and most certainly if he's lost, uh, should lay this verse to, to their heart. Now, in our last chapter, in chapter 26, we saw the development of, of, of a man or a woman that this verse will be specifically aimed at. And I want to start by letting you understand that, and then we'll expand it from there. Uh, we, we talked about, in the last chapter, a fool uh, in his folly. We talked about a man uh, who was unequal in his walk, unbalanced. We talked about a man that could not break the strongholds in his life that made him like a dog that kept returning to his, his vomit, and we talked about that. We saw him as a slothful man who the Bible says he's a sluggard, which means he's very lazy, especially when it comes to the things of God or his own life and his own family. And we saw that this guy becomes wise in his own conceits, even though he has nothing really going for him in life uh, as far as the Bible's concerned. He gets wise in his own conceit and thinks that you know, everything revolves around him or her, and of course we know that. And he's so messed up, we learned this too, I thought this was great. He is so screwed up and messed up in what he believes that the Bible says that seven men can sit down with him, obviously with an open Bible, try to show him where he's wrong, and he can never see it. He'll never learn. He's someone who never learns from history. He's someone who never learns from his mistakes or the mistakes of others through history. He always has something to say about other people's problems. We saw that. It's none of his business. He meddles into things. And he's a man or a woman who is given to gossip or slander uh, and ultimately to destroy the unity of God's church and what God is trying to do. Very obvious as you come on down through this guy, which we did in great detail, that he hates truth uh, or anybody associated with truth. And, you know, and, and, and will in time dig a pit or a trap for others to fall in, but the Bible says that when a man does that, ultimately he falls into his own trap and gets taken in his own snare. And, and in time, uh, he, uh, he loses all in any sense of, of reality in life. And I'll tell you, and the world and Christianity is filled with people just like this. And it's a, it's a tragedy today, but it's, it's such a truth. You know, yesterday we had, uh, we had our people ministry. Uh, we have a, a three-, four-year Bible institute, which was the week before. And then people ministry is folks who have decided to work with me in ministry who uh, want to work with people. 
on all, on all levels. So we go through all of the different cause and effects in the Bible. We started in Genesis and uh, we finished Daniel yesterday and we'll move into the minor prophets. Uh, we're off for the summer now, but Bible Institute still goes on. But we'll pick it up there. And I try to teach them and show them, and yesterday was a great example. I try to teach them and show them that when you're working with people, the biggest problem you're up against is people who lose all sense and touch with the reality of life. They have gotten into things in the world that they think mean something, and it doesn't mean anything. They've got themselves involved in situations to them that are the most important thing in the world. In reality, there's no importance to it at all as it lines up to the Bible. And certainly, this is what you're going to deal with. This is what you're going to find when you work with people, that you try to help people. And we have, you know, people come in all the time that want to get discipled and they want to get taught the Bible. And we work with them and and many of them make it. Many of you came in who are, you know, part of this team here that works uh, together uh, into touching people's lives. And But you came in the same way. And you had to look at your life and you had to realize that in life, there's a reality that you have to deal with. And many people today, they're, they're just set adrift in the vast sea of, of humanity. You know, in the Bible, you find this in Revelation 17.1 and then again in Revelation 17.15, great bodies of water are likened to people sometimes. And, and it's a thing where people have lost all sense and all touch of reality. If you want a, a classic example of that, just look at America. 50, 60 years ago, America had some values that were worth standing for. She still believed the Bible. She still believed God. But look where it's at today. And we have, we have lost touch with the reality of who God is and what God is. When our founding fathers put this country together, they based it on the Word of God and recognizing the hand of God in the preservation and the development of this great nation. And look where we've come today. You know why? Because we have lost reality. And our verse today will be Proverbs chapter 27, verse 1. Uh, I'm going to read it here. Then I'd like Aaron, you're back here. Proud new father. Stand up and ask God's blessing. Uh, uh, on. Uh, and uh, you don't need to pray for that little guy to be a missionary yet. That's already settled. We're going to get that going for you. But here's the verse. It says, Boast not thyself of tomorrow. For thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Aaron, pray for us, please. Four thousand years ago, the Egyptian dynasties were at their peak. If you study Egyptian history, at some point you're going to have to if you want to connect the Bible and everything together with history. You'll find that it falls into three different sections. The early dynasties or kingdoms, the middle kingdom, and then of course the late kingdoms. And when a pharaoh died... He was buried, as most of you know, in an elaborate tomb. 
If you would go over to Egypt today, uh, there's great excavations going on in uh, many of the great tombs. Uh, the pyramids themselves were created for uh, for uh, for uh, death chambers and for uh, memorials to them. Over there, they have what they call the Valley of the Kings. And that's where all of the kings were buried. And they had some of the most unbelievable. Many times, a pharaoh started building his own tomb 40, 50 years before he ever died. I mean, it wasn't like you went on Amazon and ordered your prefab tomb and shipped it in. It took years of slave labor to build those, and they were quite incredible. They used every technique that they knew, and they knew a lot better techniques than we do to keep the grave robbers out because they knew that grave, grave robbers were, uh, were going to rob the tombs and of all their possessions. Uh, you know, we have over there what is called the Great Pyramid of Calafias, which is, uh, was never a pharaoh's tomb. It's one of the great seven wonders of the world, and uh, obviously it's connected to the Bible, and uh, it's one of the most interesting things you should study. But you know what? They have never found a door to that. They never found an entrance. Back in around 1400, some Arabs were trying to break in because they thought it was a tomb, and they started to dig their way in through the side of the wall. And they just happened to dig into one of the corridors, and they heard the stones fall and hit something, and so they dug it open. And that's where the door is today. They have never found the degree that those stones are cut and put together defy anything that we can do with our laser technology and the greatest construction mind with all of the things. And they did this five, 6,000 years ago. It's older than the, the other pyramids. It's incredible. When he got buried, it was an elaborate deal. It was a progression that took place maybe for 30, 40 days. Of course, you know that they, they have, the Egyptians had a unique way of embalming people. And that's why you can go to a museum and you can see somebody that died 4,000 years ago and looks still pretty good. And, of course, it's a very unique thing. They, they had specialists who did that. They had a place that they took them, and it took about 40, 50 days to get that out. They took your brains and your intestines out through your nose. Now think about that. That hurt, but you're already dead, so no big deal. And then they went through a cooking process or whatever, shake and bake, whatever they did, but, and they wrapped you up with all of the stuff, and then you're preserved. And then they had these great possession of progressions that they, they came through there, and they, they, they took him up, and all the priests were there, and they walked him up the ramp and put him in there. And when they buried him in his, in his tomb... They put all of his possessions in it. If he had a favorite chariot, that chariot went in there. If he had a boat, that actual boat went in there. You know, I like to paddle down the Nile, you know, and check things out. And, and so they, they put his boat in there. If you were lucky enough to be a servant of Pharaoh, you had a pretty good life. But when he died, your luck changed because in most cases they buried the servants with him. Alive. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If he had favorite horses, they put the horses in there. Alive. I mean, I guess the servants have something to do. They could ride around for a little bit before they died. But anyway, they, they put all that in there. They put in buckets and buckets and bottles, a bottle of the best food and the best wine and buried it with him. 
If he had favorite furniture, things that he loved and things that they, they put that in there. All the things that he beheld, that he thought that he would need because the Egyptians believed that when you died, there was an afterlife. And so they buried all these things with him because he, they wanted him to have all of that stuff when he entered into the, the afterworld. And that's where the concept actually begins that, you can, that people think you can take it with you. And that's because all of his life, he, he focused on what he had. All of his life, he focused on who he was. And in that, being elevated to a godlike status and having everything you could ever want, he lost touch of reality. And he actually thought that he wanted all these things buried with him because he wanted that stuff in the afterlife. Today, some 4,000 years later, (laughs) not much has changed. Life for many people is still about who they are and what they have. And you look into their life and, you know, the chariots have now become automobiles. The boats, well, a boat is still a boat, but that's where it's at. The house or his palace is just filled with all of the treasures that they value so much in this world system. And, you know, you're going to find the the worship of God of money and and the job and position and, and power. All of these things haven't changed in the last 4,000 years. And people today, saved or lost, will, like Pharaoh, live their lives amassing great possessions and fortunes and live their life in the, in the, in the borders of Egypt. And in the Bible, Egypt is a picture of the world system. And we live our lives like we're going to one, live forever, and we live our lives like all that we have is so important that we live our lives like we're going to take it with us. And when we get to that point where many, many people are today, you know what we've done? We've lost touch with reality. We've lost touch of the true riches that God has, Luke chapter 16, verse 11, with the riches of this world that we have replaced that with. And I'll tell you, there's some hilarious things out there. I love getting on YouTube and, uh, uh, you know, because there's some great things on there. I was looking here a couple of weeks ago where a guy loved his Harley David motorcycle. And it was a good looking bike. And he's a big guy. And he died. And believe it or not, when they did his funeral, they embalmed him, put his leathers on him, put his helmet on him. And when you went through the visitation, he was sitting in the funeral home on his Harley. When it was time to bury him, they put the Harley on a trailer, fastened it down, and his last ride drove him to the cemetery and, yeah, buried him in a hole on his Harley. Now, that's some good gas mileage, if you want to know, going on down the line. There was another guy who had a 63, where's Gary Potter? 63 Corvette. 
Now, what a hot little thing that is. And this guy loved it. And he died. He got buried in his Corvette. I mean, they dug a hole big enough for a Corvette. He sat behind the wheel like he's going somewhere and put that thing down in the hole. And I'll tell you what. They left the lights on and the battery died. He ain't going nowhere. (laughs) You know, one of the reasons why people hate the Bible, and there's a lot of reasons why men hate the Bible. There's many. And many of them hate it directly or they hate it indirectly. Many of them hate it vocally and they'll tell you about it. Others would never speak about it vocally, but you can tell they hate it because they just don't do anything that it ever says. And you want to get this. And the reason why men hate the Bible is that Bible and its truth will be the greatest reality check that you ever have. Uh, You know what? I totally understand because churches, churches ought to be a reality check for you. I hope nobody showed up today and hadn't showered all week. There's a lady back there pointing behind a guy saying, this guy did not, I can tell. No, I, I would think that every day we take a shower, sometimes twice a day. If you're really clean, probably two or three times a day. I don't know. But you know why you got to take a shower? Because you get out in the world, you go to work, you work out, you do whatever you do, and in time, you're just going to pick up dirt. And it gets to the point where it's not only obvious uh, to it's obvious to the people around you. But you know why people will go for... There, there was a guy at the gym, and I, I don't even know his name, he's a, and he's, a, he's, a, he's the nicest guy, but he didn't... I don't think he showers for a month. And you can get in 20 feet of him, and you know he's in the building. I've had some people just look at me and say, what is this guy? Because he's the nicest guy on the planet. And, you know, you want to go up and, and, and help him out, but you know you can't do that. I mean, we, you know, I found out his birthday and gave him a bar of soap one time just as a kind of give a hint. No, I didn't. But it, it's a thing where it's obvious. You know, that's the way it is when we lose touch with reality. It's obvious to everybody else that we have, but it's never obvious to us. And that man needed a shower. And we all need a shower at least once a day. We'll just go with that for right now. But that's physically speaking. But I want to tell you something. You need a spiritual shower too. Because just like in the physical world, you pick up the dirt of this world, I guarantee you spiritually running around out there and doing all the things that we do, which are normal things, you need to get washed. You need to get clean. And so that's why, you know, church is the great reality check. It's a place today that you can come in dirty and you can hear the preaching of the word of God or the washing of the water of the word and you can leave clean. But you know what? For you to be able to do that, you have to come to a reality check. You have to see where you're really at in life. Now, this is why some people will only come to church every once a month or every six weeks or whatever it is. I I know, I know, I know. You're really busy. I get it. I get it. If that's the case, I can got some advice for you. You're too busy because you wouldn't go six weeks without a shower. 
But you think you can go four or five or six weeks without getting the washing of the water of the Word of God. Now, let me just tell you something. I'm not, I, I know why that is. You know why? Because every five or six weeks is all you can take on a reality check. Uh, because it's, it, 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 it points it out too much to you. Uh, you, can't, you just can't do that. You know, back in the book of Luke, chapter 12, verse 16 through 20, there is a great story. And uh, now, now, here's a reality check in the Bible. And it says there in verse 16, And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentiful. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to stow my fruits? And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee, then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now that is a great story. And I want to notice a couple of things. Look at verse 17. He's thinking within himself. He isn't going to God with anything. He's lost touch with the reality of God and asking God. He's speaking into himself. Look what he says in verse 19. And I will say to my soul. He's talking to himself. He's not asking God or anything. But look how God, verse 20, intervenes. But God said unto him. Now, there'll be a time in your life where you get so far out of touch with reality that you're talking to yourself. And you're talking to yourself into everything you want to do. And then there'll come a time that God will speak to you. This story will illustrate the mindset of so many people today. And boy, if this isn't a picture of modern-day America, for both saved people and for lost people, losing touch with the reality in the Christian life for a saved person. You know, God, we've talked about this a lot in Proverbs. God has a job for you to do, Philippians 1, verse 6. And the devil will blind people to keep them from getting saved, obviously. And then, oh, those who are already saved or who do get saved, he's going to blind them to the reality of their salvation of why God has saved you. And God saved us, uh, you know, so we could through our relationship with him in the book. Now, I know, I know, I know. We think the number one reason that God saved us is for ministry. And I understand that. Obviously, that's the plan after we get saved that God wants us to fulfill for him. No question about that. But I will say to you on the authority of the word of God, that's not the number one reason God saved you. The number one reason God saved you is because God wants to have fellowship with you. That's the number one reason. And through that fellowship, then yes, he will use you to do the work. But without the fellowship, there is no ministry. And God saved us so we could, through our relationship with him and the word of God, he did that so we could get all of him that there is. God will not hold anything back from you. God will give you whatever you need. God will bring into your life everything that you need once you decide that you're going to do for him what he wants you to do. And we have lost sight of this. 
We have lost sight of the fact that the number one thing is fellowship, and God wants through that fellowship for you and to me to have everything, the fullness of who he is. But instead, we don't want that. We want the fullness of all the world has for us. And we lose sight of two great truths of life. We lose the reality of two great truths of life. The first reality is how short life really is. And the second reality is how fragile the life that we have really is. Danny had a kidney stone this week and spent in an emergency room all night. And I've had him and Bill Tillman still has him. Have you passed yours yet, Bill? You're working on it? Okay. I love that. And, 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 and I was laying in the hospital with mine. And I'm telling you, if you've ever had one, they're, they're, they're bad. You've had them too, haven't you? Yes, right. And, I, you know, and know me, I don't stop for anything. So I get up that morning. I wasn't feeling real good. So I'm over to Carnegie Park. I'm going to do my walk, my run, and get my workout in. And this thing is killing me. But I said, you know what, I'll just, I'll, I'll run it on. I'll just, I'll, I'll, I always feel better when I go. And so I'm going around there, and it, I, I know, I know that I'm not going to make it. I'm going to be Proverbs chapter 26 here. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to throw up. I'm, it's really got me. And, and you're at Carnegie Park. There's people walking around. You know, where do you go to throw up? The bathrooms are locked because it's still wintertime. So where do you go? So I went behind the restroom. And, you know, I was throwing up back there, and this, this lady stuck her head around the corner. She says, are you okay? Now, here I am. I'm on my knees throwing up to beat the man, and she wants to know if I'm okay. Oh, yeah, I'm fine. I'm looking for my contact on the grass here. And I said, yes, ma'am, I am. She said, do you want me to call an ambulance? And I said, no. I, I said, so I went home. I knew something was wrong. I went down to urgent care. Easy way out. They told me, we can't do nothing for you. We don't have the equipment here. You need to go to the ER. Well, I hate going to the ER. Going to the ER is like going to purgatory. You're there forever. <laughs> Only in purgatory, you can pay money to get out. In the ER, you pay money for the rest of your life, and maybe you'll get out. But anyway, so they take me in there. They do the CAT scan and do all this stuff, and they come back, and, and I have never had one. I've heard horror stories about them. And I just, so I didn't know what, I didn't know what, Nate, what to look for. I know now. Yeah, I do. I know now. In fact, I think you're getting one coming on because I can feel it up here. But anyway, yeah. But, and, and so I, he comes in and he says, you got a kidney stone. And I'm thinking, oh, man. Because I've heard stories about that. Sometimes it takes years to pass, you know. Mine went away in a couple of hours, which is some good reasons for that. We won't get into this morning because it's irrelevant. But anyway, I'm laying there and I'm thinking to myself, he told me, he says, your kidney stone is about the size of, of, a, of a, a pin, you know, a, a, with a, got a little top on it, a little pin that you put in your shirts. He says, it's smaller than that. It's very small. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I'm five foot ten. I'm six foot four. <laughs> I'm 180 pounds. And something that small can take me out. You get the flu and you're down sick for, for, for how long? A week? Two weeks? Darren's wife, she was deathly sick. And you know what? You can't even see what causes that. And that all reminds me of how fragile we really are. 
You see, we lose touch with reality and we think that we, we're tough. We can do anything that we can do. And many times, you know, the spirit of man will overcome some great things. But I won't tell you something. It'll be some little thing like a little bug that you didn't pick up by putting your hand to your hand to your nose to your mouth that will take you down and keep you in bed for a week. Young people, they always think that they're invincible. And that's because you're young. You don't think of, of 401Ks yet. You don't think of health insurance. You don't think of, of John Knox Village. Uh, you know, you think it's an amusement park for old folks. You, 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 don't, you don't think that way. When I worked down southern uh, Kansas, down in Paola and all those areas down there, every year about this time, there was always one or two kids to graduate from high school that got killed. And they got killed because they would do what most of you kids would know, hill jumping. Where you get in a car and you drive real fast up over a hill and then try to get your car off into the air and come back down again. And I talked to a, a, a state highway patrolman one time where I was marking and they were doing a funeral there and he said, yeah, we have that happen. He says, these kids think because they're young that they're invincible and they do things stupid things that wind up getting killed. There was no reason for these kids to be killed other than the fact that they thought it wouldn't happen to them. And I'm telling you, and it's the same way with, with all of us. The older we get, you'd think the smarter we'd get. But we all have that thing we think we can, we, we're the exception. We can beat the system. You ain't going to beat the system. system's going to beat you. And we forget how short life is and how fragile it is. James chapter 4, verse 14 says, but whereas what it, we know that uh, shall be on the morrow, for what is your life that is even a vapor and appear for a little time and then fadeth away? When I preach a funeral, um, I, I usually preach the exact same message. Um, I mean, you don't have the same crowd, so it's always a good deal. And, uh, and I always preach out of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. I think that probably is the greatest verse in the Bible for a funeral. And I've heard other people do it, and, you know, I, but I'm saying if you want to get down to a Bible basics, that's probably it. Because he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1, uh, the days of one's death is better than the days of one's birth. And that's a great paradox, you know. And then he says... It's better to go to the house of mourning, to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. And I always take that verse, and I always talk about the four concepts of death that we don't want to think about. And I talk about how that we try to put death as far away as we can. I don't know about you, but when I get a guy call me up on the phone and wants to sell me things, I usually hang up on him. If I get a guy from a funeral home who wants to sell me a plan and a casket, I hang up on him even quicker. Nobody wants to think about dying. I would hate to be a salesman that all I have is my income is going around trying to buy people to buy prepaid funeral plans and buy a casket. Well, come on down and look it out, you know, like you're kicking the tires on a car you're going to buy. Are you kidding me? Look how comfy it is. <laughs> look at the little pillow. Like that's really going to make a difference in that day. But I always tell them there's a reality in death. Death is a reality. And then I come back and I tell them that there is a certainty in death. You're all going to die. And I tell them, hey, I don't preach a funeral that I know that someday if Jesus doesn't come, somebody's going to preach mine. But then I say, yeah, there's a reality in death and there's a certainty in death. 
But then there's a hope in death. And that hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can see how it'll work in a funeral. You're bringing them right through. You're going after the people and you say, hey, look, the greatest object lesson that you'll ever, you'll ever see is laying before you in the casket. And I also tell them, you know what? I know that everybody here would rather be someplace else. Nobody got up this morning with anticipation, oh, I can't wait to get to the funeral. We'd all rather be someplace else. You know why? Because the object that's in that casket tells you that that is the end of all men and someday the living. You better lay it to your heart. So I talk about a, re- a reality of death and a certainty of death, a hope in death. And then I bring it back around to if the person is saved, I talk about the comfort in death. And we talk about how that works and how that goes. You know, and it's, uh, it, it's one of those things. Somebody asked me one time, you know, you've done a lot of weddings and, you know, you've done a lot of funerals. What do you like to do best? Well, I like to do weddings, I, especially if there's somebody that's been in my ministry and I, you know, I, I, I really enjoy being part of that. I really do. But I got to be honest with you. My greatest deal that I love to do is funerals. And uh, it's, a funeral, is, it, I think, is the greatest opportunity if you, if you know what you're doing with it. Uh, not only that, but as I told the guy one time, you know, I've done lots of marriages where they didn't last, but I never did a funeral that didn't stick. <laughs> and to me, that's, 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 I like that, you see. I mean, and you can get more done with it that way. And uh, it's a thing where, you know, because people are, are vulnerable at that time in a good way. And people many times, they're forced to step out of the little world of denial and for maybe 35 minutes or 40 minutes are faced with the reality that you are not going to live forever. And as somebody aptly said, there is no trailer hitches on hearses. You don't take it with you. You know, back in the book of Psalms, Psalms chapter 90, I think you'll find one of the greatest reality checks of life. I probably go through this for myself two or three times a year, maybe more on that. And it's a great reality check. You know, it's a thing, and I tell you all the time, you know, churches are to be your reality check. You know, you, you come here to get clean. You come here and the Holy Spirit of God uh, points out to you what needs to be changed. And, and it keeps you in the boundaries of the reality of life. Victor Sears, we talked about him and his brother Howard being great preachers. I heard him preach one time and uh, he was preaching and he said, uh, he was preaching on getting clean with the Word of God. And he said, you know, he says, I was driving up here from Alabama and he says, I stopped in uh, Kentucky or someplace early uh, in the morning where I was going to preach and I had to get gas in my car and it was about 6.30 in the morning. And he says, I was putting gas in my car. Two little boys come running up to me and said, hey, mister, how are you? And I talked with them and those little boys were just so filthy dirty. Their feet were dirty. Their hair was dirty. Everything about them was dirty. And I asked them, I said, I said, how did you young men get so dirty so early in this morning? And the little boy, she says, oh, that's easy. We went to bed that way. <laughs> and he said, you know what? I bet that's true of a lot of God's people today. You're dirty this morning because you went to bed that way. All those old boys, you couldn't, you couldn't get past them. You just couldn't. And Psalms 90 verses 9 through 12 says, <clears throat> 
for all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our lives are threescore years and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, uh, yet is their strength, labor, and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knoweth the power of thine anger, even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. So teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. And I think at the end of that is probably the greatest advice that that God ever gave anybody, especially you and me as Christians, uh, of the reality check of life. We're to teach, God teaches us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Now, the older you get, and I get it, you young kids don't, aren't there yet. I understand that. But the older you get in life, the more uh, the reality of this truth sets in. And for me, a year and two months from now, I'll be 70. I know, I know, I don't look it, I get it, but I will be. And I've hit now what he says, three score and ten. Now, I know that's an average. And if you would take everybody who died, because some people lived to be 96, Dr. Ruckman did, you know, my father and Lord lived to be 92, my own mom lived to be 90. What? Never mind. <laughs> How old was my mom when she died? I think your mom was 95 or 96. And how old was grandma when she died? Stevens. 102. 102. But if you got them all together, and then you got people who are die uh, when they're in their 18 or 20s or 6 or 7, you average it all up, I guarantee you come under 70. And I'm telling you, he says that if you get more than that, 70, now a score is 20, 20, 20, 20, 60, and then 70. Three score and ten. If you get more than that, if you live to be 80, 90, or 100, I mean, uh, you know, then that's grace. But he says that in that extra time, there goes your strength, there goes your labor, there's more labor to it, and there's certainly more sorrow, pain, and suffering. The child of God should be looking every day for the Lord to get him out of this mess. Now, I know that's probably too much reality for all of us. But the last prayer in the Bible is, out of the John, who's a great type of the church, is even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And when you got up in the morning, you should have never expected to get here at church because you thought for sure the Lord would come back. Uh, you uh, you uh, ought to be saying, we're going to go out on restart. Gary's getting it all ready, getting it ready to go. You guys are going down to cook, get it all ready to go. But you know what? In reality, we all ought to really expect we're not going to do that because the Lord's coming back. Now, I'm telling you, uh, but it seems to me in dealing with people for almost 50 years that the only time people ever want to come, the Lord to come back really is when they're in some big problem and some big mess and they need the Lord to come back for the court date. Amen. <laughs> That's how it works. And of course, God never will come with that. In fact, uh, you know, if you want to know when the rapture will be, you're just going to have to find someplace in time where no Christian's court dates are set on that day. And that's probably the day he'll come. Because he's not going to honor that prayer and get you out of that mess. You're in it. He'll let you go through it and then come day after. But anyway. <laughs> and, and I looked at that and I thought to myself, you know, that, that is so true. Though the older I get, the less I can do. Uh, there was a time in my life when I'd go through life at Mach 2 with my hair on fire. There was a time in my life when I, I could burn 24-7. 
Now I'm the first to tell you, my wood's wet. (laughs) I don't don't burn like I did. I smoke a lot, but I don't burn like I did. My wood's wet. I'm in trouble. But I've learned, I have learned that if you do it right, you train others to carry on for you. I, I feel I'm the most fortunate man on the planet because uh, my, my two girls and their husbands are carrying on for me what I can't do anymore. I used to do all that. I used to do all that plus everything I do. Can't do it anymore. And uh, they do it now. And then I have all of you on top of that who, who do so much. I mean, I'm going to tell you something. And you older folks will know what I'm talking about. The older you get, brother, the harder it is to do what you used to do. I tell, I go to the gym, work out two, three times a week. You know how I know I'm getting old? When it's harder to get out of the machine after you're in it than to do it when you're in, you're getting old. <laughs> I need to have handholds that pull you up, man. I'm thinking about getting one of them chairs that you sit in it, you know, when it's time to get up, you just push the button and it dumps out. One of those elevator on the stairs, you know, you strap yourself in and you just push the button and up you go. Mm, Round the corner. I ain't quite there yet, but I'm checking them out on Amazon. You're always, the first thing, I was told this the day I got into the ministry. The first thing you do, the long range goal you have is to prepare the people to do for you what you want done when you're doing when you can't do it anymore. And I followed that rule and you're living testimony to that. And the verse says in verse 12 to teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Now, you want a reality check? I'm going to give you one because this is my reality check. I did this 35 years ago, but I'll give you one. Now, that thing says 70 years. Now, kids, that seems like a long time. If you're 19 here, 15, 16, or 17, or even 20, that seems like that's a long time away for you. Now, that's why you're not worried about it. When Obama gave Obamacare, you didn't run out and sign up. You're not worried about it. You don't take money out of your little paychecks and have a 401k. Maybe some of you do. Most of you don't. Uh, you don't worry about that. You're not thinking about that. I mean, you can run all day and, and do all you do. You're, you're in sports. You play this and play that. But I won't tell you, there's a day coming you're not going to do that anymore. And I, I'm just telling you, you, the reality here, he says three score and seven. That's 70 years. And I looked at that one time, and then I put my own self in the, in the, in the bracket here. I didn't get saved and right with God till I was 20 years old. So my 70 years now has just been cut to 50. Now, this is a reality check. Then I read someplace that in a lifetime you sleep 15 years. Now I'm down to 35 years. Then I read someplace that out of a full life you eat seven years of that. Now I'm down to 28 years. And then you figure in your vacations, your ball games, all the things that we do, the times we spend out of fellowship with God. And I'm going to tell you something, reality, maybe, just maybe, you got 10, 15 years to give the Lord out of your life. That's reality. That's reality. 
I know obviously the smart child of God who gets into the Bible, uh, Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16, you learn how to redeem the time. You can make some of that up if you know what you're doing. Now, let me talk to you parents for a moment. Parents always want better for their kids than they've had. And I get that. That's the way it should be. I wanted my kids to be, I wanted my kids to have better than, than I had. Uh, and, and any parent that's worth their salt wants that for their kids. And they work hard for doing that. And uh, many dads and moms didn't go to college, but they make sure that you get to go to college. They give you all those advantages that, that they, they never had. And of course, I understand that. But I want to tell you something. The greatest key to parenting, the greatest key to parenting is making sure that your child gets the fullest benefit of ability to serve God out of that 70 years that God's going to give them. Now, I know there's some of you here that that are like me. You didn't get right with God or saved until you were 20 years into this thing. I understand. And, uh, you know, I feel like sometimes at the judgment seat of Christ, we'll be like the guy who uh, retired from the company. He worked there five years, and he retired, and they gave him a 20-year watch. And everybody said, how did he get that? And they said, he put in a lot of overtime. You and I got to put in a lot of overtime. We got to learn how to redeem that time. But you as a parent, your number one goal other than getting your child saved is to give your child, listen to me, the absolute best chance at the judgment seat of Christ. That they get born into your family, they get saved when they're eight or nine, they get concentrated when they're 12, 13, they work by your side in ministry and your life example, and you take them into the ministry, and they don't have the downtime that many of us have. That's the greatest gift you can give your child. The greatest gift you can give your child is a good run at the judgment seat of Christ because you knew what they needed that you didn't have and you provided for them everything from the time they were born to the time you die that they are set, that they got saved, they got sanctified, they got into the Bible, they learned, they got into ministry through your family and they did everything Everything and you led them, and when you pass off the scene, the die is set for them. And they never have to look at this thing from I wasted 20 years of my life. I've seen people that got saved and right with God or right with God when they were in their 60s. They wasted 60 years of their life. I heard a kid one time give a testimony, and, and Meredith, you understand what I'm about to say. He got there, the kid's dying. And you know what he said? He got, what, month, maybe a year to live? And he said, to front of all of my life, I wasted it on myself. And now, when I need to do what I need to do, I'm not going to be able to do it. I'm telling you, there is a reality of the fragility of life and the shortness of life. And we look at that thing, man, and we think, oh, 70 years. I want to tell you something. I want to tell you something. That that is just a vapor of time. And out of that whole thing, maybe, just maybe, you've got 10, 12, 15 years to do it. Now, in light of that verse today and in the moments we have left, I want to show you two great illustrations of in the Bible that 
that what he's saying in Proverbs 27.1 and again in James chapter 4, verse 14. Two men in the Bible, that will be the living example of this verse and so many people today. Now, we use these two men as examples of unsaved men and in, it's, it's in his refusal to recognize God and his salvation, and that would be absolutely correct. But without a doubt, based on 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 and Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, we find out that a saved man can do everything that an unsaved man can do except go to hell. I mean, when both lose the reality of God and what God's got for them, one will live in the flesh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, the other one will walk after the flesh. That's a saved man in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. And our first man will be found in Exodus chapter 8. We know his name is Pharaoh. And we're going to learn a great word now that goes along with both saved people and unsaved people. I'll give it to you in a moment. Now, here's a picture of Moses going before Pharaoh to give him God's message to let his people go and for the deliverance of the nation of Israel. Now, we know from the Bible that this is a picture of you and me getting saved because as Israel, the son of God, was in Egypt, the type of the world, so were you. And when God delivered you, he delivered you through Jesus Christ. When he delivered them, he delivered them through Moses, who's a type of Christ. And the picture is you and me going before the world, Moses here, with God's message to deliver people and their responses. Now, I, I want to stop for a moment. I want you to see this because I think this is vital. When God delivered Israel from the world, Egypt, I want you to notice he didn't do it with a great army. He didn't do it with a great preacher. No, he used a common man off the backside of the desert and used him through his weakness, not his strength. And you need to see that because the idea that you're sitting here this morning and you're God shot and you can't do what God wants you to do is not true. God wants to take what you have and through the weaknesses of your life, make you everything that he wanted to be. He was afraid. He was fearful. He was not a good speaker. He had a bad opinion of himself. It doesn't matter how you view yourself. It only matters how God sees you. And when you're saved, God sees you in Christ Jesus. And there isn't one thing in your life that will hold you back unless it's you. And, and Pharaoh's answer to the message of God is what every unsaved man will say. And many Christians too, after they are saved, with faced with serving God. And I need to say this, Pharaoh had seen, it wasn't like Pharaoh didn't know who God was. <clears throat> it wasn't like Pharaoh <clears throat> hadn't seen the power of God. I mean, long before Moses goes to him, he saw Moses take a rod and throw it down and it became a snake. He saw Moses take that same rod and turn the waters to blood. He saw Moses bring up all the frogs. He saw Moses turn the dust into lice and, and just infiltrate Egypt. He saw the swarms of flies all by the hand of Moses through the power of God to the message of God to Pharaoh. So don't tell me that unsaved people today or even some of God's people who don't want to serve God or you want to do your own thing because you're out of the touch with the reality of your salvation or life. 
You see the power of God around you all the time. You choose like Pharaoh to give the same answer that Pharaoh did. Because when Pharaoh is faced with all of that, Pharaoh's answer is answer that everybody gives found in Exodus 10. You know what he says? Tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. And the great word here is procrastination. He says, I'll do it tomorrow. Sometimes I just scratch my head. I've seen God's people who are going through some sickness. They're going through some ailment. They're going through some affliction. They lose everything. They have problem after problem after problem. And because they're so out of form with reality, they never stop and think, is God knocking on my door? My goodness, I don't get a flat tire someplace that I don't stop and say, God, did I screw up someplace? Tomorrow, I've learned over the years that the greatest sin is the sin of omission. The greatest sin in life is not the things that we do. The greatest sin in life is the things that we don't do. And we put it off. Now, our second guy will be in the New Testament, and he's found over there in Acts chapter 25 and Acts chapter 26. Paul now has went down to Rome. We know that uh, Paul was warned three times not to go down to Jerusalem in the book of Acts, and he went anyhow. And then he gets arrested, and finally he winds up in Rome, and this is the end of his ministry. And Rome, much like Egypt, is a world system. In the Old Testament in that time, Egypt is a picture of the world. In the New Testament time, Rome's a picture of the world. And this is an incredible study. You know, back in Acts chapter 9, Paul uh, got saved. And Ananias is told by God to go help Paul. And God tells Ananias that this guy, Paul, is a chosen vessel to me. And he's going to bear my name before the Gentiles, before kings and the nation of Israel. And when you go through the book of Acts, you'll find that prophecy being fulfilled where he brings it to the Gentiles, where he takes it to the Jew, and here to kings. And it starts out in chapter 24 that he winds up with the high priest Ananias. This is not the same one that was back in Acts 9. And Ananias was the pagan high priest of the nation of Israel, and he has problems with him. Then he, chapter 24, he's up against Attilius, who is a Roman lawyer, like a prosecutor, and he goes after him. Then in chapter 24, he's taken before Felix, who is the governor of Jerusalem. Then in chapter 25, he goes before Festus, who is the governor of Caesarea, who comes through that region, and he goes before him. Finally, in chapter 26, he comes before the king, King Agrippa. And King Agrippa is the new Herod. And in that passage is one of the greatest examples and illustrations anywhere in the Bible of how you give your testimony to the world. And he nails this old boy right between the eyes. It's always been an amazing thing to me. Paul is captive by Rome. He's about to be killed by Rome. He's held in shackles, Rome, and he's before his captors. And yet when you read the story of him standing before these kings, it's hard to see who's really Captive of who? Because Paul is fearless. And he takes these guys on and he forces the issue to them. And he tells, especially King Agrippa, 
He says, King Agrippa, you know what I'm saying is true. The things that God has done, the things that (coughs) have all been around, it's not been done in a corner someplace. You know, King Agrippa, the power of God that I'm talking about. He nailed him. What a great example for you and for me. But you have to give your account before the world. And in verse 28, our second great answer by an unsaved man under the conviction of God, in Acts 26, verse 28, King Agrippa says, Almost thou persuadest me to become a Christian. The two great answers that man has that keeps him from facing God, whether he's saved or he's lost. There's unsaved people who need to be saved, and when you face it, it'll be tomorrow, or, wow, that was almost, and saved people who are saved that aren't living right, aren't doing what God wants to do, are coming up to face the judgment seat of Christ, and you try to tell them where they're at, and they need to get right with God, and it'll be tomorrow. Almost. And both of these men are caught up in the world around them. Egypt and Rome are two of the most godless pagan nations in all the history of man. None greater, uh, maybe with the exception of Alexander the Great, with Greece. And they are so full of themselves that they have lost the reality of everything in life. They are the poster child, like so many of God's people and unsaved people, of being wise in their own conceits. Both Egypt and Rome thought that they were of the gods, The pharaoh was a god. The Roman emperor was a god. The gods lived on Mount Olympus in Rome compared to Mount Zion in the Bible. And he was like Jesus Christ. He was the god of the great god Zeus, the son of Zeus. And they looked at him just like we looked at Jesus Christ. You know, the Romans had over 600 gods. They had a god for everything. Egyptians had over 400. One of the reasons we got the term Christian, we got it from the Roman Empire, because Christian means little Christ. And they looked at what we believed as a poor man's religion because we only had one God when they had 600. So we got called little Christians or little little Christ, Christians. That's where those things start. It's a great lesson. It's a great lesson. You know, it, it, it shows us that, that an unsaved man lives his life completely rejecting that there is an eternity out there and he'll face it in the lake of fire without God. And the saved man lives his life like his millennial inheritance is down here. He's going to get everything he can and can everything he gets. And he cares nothing about the ministry or the burden of God, losing all reality of what God is doing and how he needs to fit into it. And it's all by the devil's design. Story goes that thousands of years ago, the devil and all his hordes sat down to contemplate the destruction of God's program and the destruction of God's people. And the story goes that they wanted to lay out a plan for the destruction of mankind. As they sat around and thought, one said, Master, let's tell the people that there is no God. They all thought for a moment. Many thought that was a good idea. But the devil says, no, that won't work because God is seen in everything. Romans 1 verses 19, 20, 
he manifests himself in the creation. Why, even the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. That's a great idea, but it, it, it won't work. Why, even men use his name as a common cuss word to try to say that there is no God. I like that, but it, it won't work. They thought for a little while, and one of the other unclean spirits said, Master, I have an idea. Let's tell people that there's no heaven. They all thought that was a great idea, but Satan said no. You know, once the Gospels come out, Jesus talks about heaven over and over and over again, and Paul talks about it. There's just too many references to it, and when people lose a loved one, they want to know where that loved one is. So, no, I, I like that, but no, it, it won't work. A few minutes later, they thought about it, and somebody else said, Master, let's tell them that there is no hell. And he said, well, I'd like that. But he says, no, Jesus again, he preached on hell. What are you going to do with Revelation chapter 20? There's too many references to it. We, we, we can't do that. It just, it just won't work. Well, silence filled the room. And one demonic being rose to his feet and said, Master, I have the answer. Every demonic, unclean spirit in that room looked toward him. I know we can never get them to believe that there's no God. I know we can never get them <clears throat> to believe that there's no heaven. I know we can never get them to believe that there's no hell. So let's allow them all they want in life, and let's get them to believe that there's no hurry. That they can do it tomorrow. That they can almost and then at some later date. And everybody said, that's it. That's what we will do. And from that time on, and of course, I made that story up. But from that point on, someplace along the line, mankind got the idea that you can put it off till tomorrow or almost you can become a Christian. The wisest man that ever lived said in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of one's death than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. And it says in Proverbs 27, 1, boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Luke 12, verse 20 said, you're planning all these things, I'm going to tear down my barns and I'm going to build more. Look at all that I have. Look at all that I've got. Man, I'm doing really good. I'm sitting on top of the world. And God said, tonight, thy soul will be required of thee. Unsaved man, there's the fire, the eternal fire of the great white throne judgment coming your way. The final reality check for you. The day you'll not be able to stand behind your possessions or your power, that you'll leave it all down here and the moment you step out into eternity, the reality will set in. It won't matter in that day if you were a CEO, if you were a billionaire, if you were a senator, a congressman, a king, a queen, or the president. The reality will be and always has been that you're just a guilty sinner who needed the covering of God's blood on your sins. Saved man, 
Well, there's the fire of the judgment seat of Christ coming your way. And it will be our reality check. <clears throat> the day we face the Lord Jesus and your works and my works are tried by the fire. I would say in that day, the reality will set in so desperately hard that there will be people, God's people, who wasted their whole life living in denial, begging for just 10, 15, 20 minutes to go back to earth to serve God, and it won't happen. There'll be no hiding behind all of the things that have we put in front of what God has called us to do. In both cases, we stand naked before God and nowhere to hide but only the reality of who now God is and what he had for us. But today, <clears throat> in spite of that, today, in spite of the truth that is all around you, unsaved people will continue to say, tomorrow, I'll do it tomorrow. And wow, almost and God's people, when faced with what God has called you to do, died for you, saved you, shed his blood, and wants to have you have everything that he is through the fellowship, you and me, who are saved and going to spend an eternity with him, look at what he did and what he gave us and say to him, tomorrow, Lord, I'll do it tomorrow. Or you're sitting here this morning and you leave here and on your way home, you'll say, wow, almost I got right with God today. Well, I got news for you. Your almost turns into never going to happen and your tomorrows never come. Behold, today is the day. God loves you. He died for you. And this is a message that you leave with and you take yourself and you speak to yourself individually. Yes. You're here this morning and you've never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior. I'm here. You come and see me. If you're a young man, I'll have one of my young men take you. If you're a young lady, have one of my young ladies take you. You come and see me. Don't leave here today. Yes, I could give an invitation and we could sing a thousand stanzas. You know what? I've given you the greatest truth you could ever have today. If that won't move you, Nothing will. Yeah. 